morning and welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you today. Brianna, what do we have? Our panel is going to break down some new NBC polls that show how voters are really feeling about inflation and row. And we'll discuss the return of masking in New York City. Robbie's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. So this weekend, the U.S. saw a string of racial and politically motivated violence as shootings broke out at a predominantly black community's grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and then a California church attended by mostly Taiwanese parishioners. That incident killed one and injured five, the latter incident. In fact, over the weekend, eight U.S. cities were in the victims of gun violence, including Milwaukee, Dallas, Chicago, Houston, Amarillo, Winston-Salem, and most famously, Buffalo, New York, where at least 65 people were shot and 17 fatalities. Now, Democrats and mainstream media are calling out Fox News, specifically Tucker Carlson, for his past rhetoric involving elements of the, quote, great replacement theory, allegedly, that motivated Buffalo's uh, presumed gunman, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, to open fire. On CNN, Jim Acosta and company called for the NFL and Comcast to stop funding Fox altogether. Let's listen. The New York Times recently ran an expose on Carlson's record of promoting white nationalism and replacement theory. He tweeted out this, a picture of himself holding up the article, the front page of the New York Times, and laughing about it. Uh, Derek, as you know, millions of people absorb this garbage on a regular basis on his program. Fox does nothing about it. Uh, they make millions of dollars off of it. We have not shied away from calling that out uh, and calling Tucker out on this program because what he is doing is very dangerous. Um, what do you think can be done about this, and what do you say to all of that? Well, first of all, Fox News is funded through carriage fees from Comcast and other platforms. And that funding is a result of News Corp getting an NFL contract, which generates millions of dollars. The, the advertisers for NFL, the NFL must stand up and tell News Corp to drop Fox News, stop funding them. Meanwhile, late night host Seth Meyer also dedicated screen time to calling out Carlson and Fox for the tragic shooting, as well as MSNBC, according to Kim. Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre had this to say when asked by reporters about Carlson's influence. Let's watch. Does the White House believe these views are being amplified by Tupper Carlson? Look, you know, like I said, we are still figuring out the motivation of all of this, uh, and we are very clear. Look, um, you know, as you all know, watching what happened in Charlottesville was a major uh, factor in the president deciding to run, right, and back in uh, 2017. You know, many of those dark voices still exist today, and the president is, a, is, is determined, as he was back then, and he is determined today, to make sure that we fight back against those forces of hate and evil and, and, and uh, violence. So that's what we're going to keep doing. Uh, that's what we're going to continue to call out. But we reject hatred and extremism ideologies. Yeah, what's interesting to me is that in some ways I think the focus on Tucker Carlson is shifting the conversation away from a place that would be more useful, which is whether or not the broader discourse around replacement theory that has been a present in many different shows and many different platforms on the right impacted the shooting. You know, a lot of people have made much of the fact that the shooter didn't reference Tucker Carlson specifically, that he is not in an age demographic that would have watched Tucker Carlson. I've seen all these kinds of arguments being made, and that's fine. I think that, generally speaking, folks are right to say that you can never draw direct causality in these instances, or more often than not, you can't, because most often they don't say, I literally did this because so-and-so told me to. Sometimes they do, but most of the time they don't. What we do know is that he talked about the, grace, the replacement theory. We know that he... 
um, that this is a, something that Tucker Carlson has embraced kind of unabashedly. And I think there's a bigger conversation to have about some things that liberals have done that have fed into that narrative as well. For years, they did kind of advocate responsibility for convincing the public and speaking to voters and meeting their needs because they thought that immigration trends were going to bolster the Democratic Party regardless of what they actually substantively did. And I think that interaction between the, the broad left making those arguments and the right then picking up those arguments in a nativistic way is interesting and people should talk about it. But I'm afraid that by focusing too much on Tucker Carlson, you're ultimately limiting the conversation and absolving people of responsibility for the broader kind of nationalistic conversation that you know, is arguing for a version of America that kind of affirmatively excludes non-white Americans. Right. A, a, a theory that is, I mean, obviously a conspiracy theory, so flawed for many reasons, but I think even the more acceptable mainstream conservative view that we, we have to be against immigration, we have to prevent more immigrants from coming here because they are, you know, their values are different than the native populations, the native population, right? The white European people who live here, and we, we must prevent this because then we'll lose out politically. Like, that is wrong, too, because many of the immigrants, not all, but many of the immigrants who come here are more religious and more conservative, conservative. more capital. They come from places where socialism is a dirty word. Mm -hmm. They are Trump-loving oftentimes, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the kind of uh, very successful, affluent, highly educated white American is becoming a reliable bastion of support for the Democratic Party. Immigrants are much more split. So the whole idea is actually very wrong. The, the, the idea that a lot of, I think, more mainstream conservatives. Now, this, this theory, that the Shooter's Manifesto, if you read through it, he also, you know, he attaches this to a deliberate plot by Jewish people, by the Jews, right, to export non-white people to America. And that's the part where I think you have a hard time identifying it to any tangible conservative media agenda or person who taught, because there's not a lot of, like, there's none. There's no railing against the Jews as, like, puppet masters. In, I mean, there's some of it in a, there's some of it on the far right fringe. There's some of it in the, the left wing fringe. It doesn't, it just doesn't show up in a lot of mainstream discourse, well, to look, my mind. It, it's, it's difficult because to, you know, Karine Jean-Pierre's point, we did get launched into this whole kind of political media landscape by the Charlottesville protests where they were pretty vocally saying the Jews will not replace us, the Jews will not replace us. Right, the crazy people, but that doesn't get covered favorably at all. There isn't, For sure, there isn't criticism of, of the Jewish people. In fact, there's wildly pro-Israeli sentiment it, in conservative But it's also news. true that that 200,000-word New York Times expose, whatever you think about it, I just did a deep dive on it on my show, but whatever you think about it, one of the things that it points to is that Tucker Carlson's production process is to have producers comb through exactly those kind of extremist websites and find the stories that are motivating people and galvanizing people. And whether or not he is actually articulating those specific messages from those websites, the people who frequent those websites and run those websites have said out loud they really appreciate that Tucker Carlson is a better interlocutor for them in advancing much of their messaging than they've ever been able to do. And so that doesn't mean that, you know, there's a one-to-one -one relationship there. But again, I would rather be having a conversation not about Tucker Carlson, but how it is that somehow all of that kind of rhetoric is making it to the mainstream or at least making people feel like that it's more acceptable. And regardless, even the, the particular angle about 
um, the influence of, you know, this, you know, alleged Jewish cabal aside, this is a person, this is a shooter who was expressly anti-black and white supremacist. There is some cringing around the use of the term anti-white uh, supremacist because it has in some cases been, been overused. I am frustrated in this context that it feels like there, I'm hamstrung at even talking about the reality of what happened in a very explicit conversation where someone has written, here's your reparations on a gun before seeking out a black neighborhood and killing a bunch of black people. That even now it feels weird, you know, there's this hesitation to say it because I know some, so many people are at a point where they do not believe white supremacy even exists. I mean, this, this person is, is, a a white, is a white nationalist or a white supremacist. I, if anyone right. is going to, no one should deny that. But, You'd but be a people fool like to deny Tucker that. Carlson explicitly go on their show and say, what, what is a racist? What is a white supremacist? Do these things even exist? And really cast doubt that there is any quarter left in the United States of America where something like this can happen. And I think that is dangerous. Yeah, well, they, they do exist. This person is certainly one of them. So here's how journalist Glenn Greenwald uh, kind of responded to this sort of Tucker blaming the media's so-called selective reaction in his mind to the Buffalo shooting. He cited the now infamous House GOP baseball practice where Congressman Stephen Scalise was shot in the hip and almost died at the hands of a diehard Democrat, Maddow fanatic, Bernie campaigner. Uh, it, this was Glenn's uh, take home. It's madness to assign moral or political blame to mass shooters. Glenn also highlighted who the shooters' influence were, influences were in his manifesto, which included other mass shooters, but did not actually specifically mention Fox or Tucker, and on the contrary, actually described his hatred for political conservatism in his manifesto. Journalist Judd Legum disagreed with Glenn's assertions and noted Tucker's past commentary on immigration. In April 2021, Carlson allegedly said that worst attack on our democracy in 160 years was the Immigration Act of 1965. So the, the other thing, though, that I definitely wanted to bring up, uh, and I, I bring up often when there is a, a violent episode like this, is we are very focused on a small cat what is thankfully a small category of violence we do have a lot of violence in this country we have a lot more violence in this country than a lot of our peer countries which is alarming the overwhelming majority of that violence is not politically motivated it's, sure. it's motivated by workplace uh animus uh domestic violence uh generic crime poverty uh, poverty all sorts of things a one of the one of the on the cat, list of reasons why people in America kill each other, very fat, far down the list, is uh, a, a politically discernible hatred. Mm. It gets a lot of attention when it does happen, and I, from looking at the statistics, it looks clear to me like it has ticked up a little bit in the category of of right wing political violence in the last fifteen years or so. But it's still not a lot compared to all you know people. People just get shot to death sometimes in Chicago, like every weekend, every day. Right, but Robbie, in the context of a weekend of horrific shootings, I don't think it's inappropriate to spend some time thinking about why it is that hate crimes are on the rise, that you know the FBI and what have you have signaled that there is this growth of hate groups, and particularly uh, you know, ones that are, are using the internet in new and interesting ways to grow their ranks and recruit people, the way that you know, these chat functions in a lot of these gaming sites are actively reaching out to young, impressionable kids, trying to hit them with exactly the kind of messaging that seems to have motivated um, at least one of the shooters this past weekend. I think it's worth having a little bit of a conversation about. And, you know, particularly when we're seeing, you know, I, you know, I, I'm 
friends with Glenn. I love Glenn, but the idea that we can't assign moral blame to a shooter is, I think, we can assign, <laughs> No, I, I think he's saying we, we should blame the shooter. We shouldn't blame necessarily the broader, uh, you know, media. I mean, there's a lot of, and I'm going to talk specifically about the social media aspect of this in my radar next. So I want to save that discussion for that. Uh, but no, I, I certainly think it's right. It's worth having a conversation. I mean, we're having a conversation now about, you know, what are the roots of this kind of thing? I absolutely think um, conservative media should, you know, turn down the. T- I don't. I don't even agree on the immigration. I think immigration is good, and a lot of the immigrants coming right, here but, but, are not. So they. So I disagree, and I think they should turn down the rhetoric on a lot of that stuff. But, th- but this is the conversation. I mean, we want to talk about Tucker not being couple, and I understand that it's not about any one person. You know, just because someone says they like a person, it doesn't matter. But when you have messaging that you can point to, what you couldn't say about Bernie Sanders is that there's something in his message that says go to baseball parks and shoot people up. When you have someone saying I'm most motivated in the shooting because I don't like immigrants and they're making the country worse. And you have a number of commentators right. that are saying the worst thing that ever happened to the country was an immigration act that let non-white people into the country. It's difficult to but separate went, that messaging then, out then from went, cause and, then he and, and He went and killed black people, not right. immigrants, which, is, which, which doesn't which even is another consistent thing with the manifesto. But Black which, people have been here. But which <laughs> also undermines some of the race-blind claims that Tucker Carlson makes, right? Because he talks about this idea of legacy Americans and that all he's trying to do is maintain the American character. Well, when this country was founded, t- Black Americans are 20% of the population, tw- double what they are right now. But nowhere in his screeds is he talking about how to maintain the cultural purity of a predominantly Black or a, dis- a more Black right. country than we're in now, right? And he's not calling for more immigrants from Africa to make sure that we get, or, or Caribbean or wherever else, to make sure the numbers get back up to where they were in 1776. I, if, if we're trying to maintain our cultural purity, I'm far more <laughs> worried about what comes out of our own elite institutions than what we export here from the people who are coming here to work hard. Yeah, and well, fair them. enough, fair. <laughs> I, and I look forward to hearing what's in your radar next, Robbie. So, Robbie, what's on your radar today? So when a psychopath perpetrates a mass shooting, politicians often pick an industry, a trend, or a substance to blame for having caused the violence. Violent video games are a favorite target of both parties. Democratic senators pilloried them throughout the 1990s and the early aughts. And then former President Donald Trump also went after them following the El Paso shooting in 2019. But other targets are psychiatric medications, Satanism, and of course the Second Amendment. Now, on Saturday, 18-year-old Peyton Gendron, a white nationalist conspiracy theorist, according to his online manifesto, traveled to a supermarket in a majority black area in Buffalo, New York, and killed 11 people, most of whom were African-American. Democratic New York Governor Kathy Hochul has responded to the horrific violence in Buffalo over the weekend with a familiar invective against guns, but she is also pinning the blame on social media. In a Sunday interview with NBC News' Chuck Todd, she faulted online platforms for not doing more to police extremism. So here's a transcript of her remarks. She said, it's all induced by the Internet, and the fact that platforms are willing to share this information, allow it to be posted, a manifesto that's been out there that describes in great detail how someone wants to have an execution of individuals in a community that's targeted because it's the highest black population within a geographic area, that's all out there. And also the fact that this can be live-streamed. How long was it live streamed before someone paid attention? End quote. So there's actually an answer to her question. It was two minutes. Twitch caught it in two minutes and took it down, which is pretty darn fast. Never mind that. 
So she continues saying, I hold them responsible for not monitoring and alerting law enforcement. That's exactly the issue. Here is it. Here, that's it. It's, fo it's fomenting. People are sharing these ideas. They're sharing videos of other attacks. They're all copycat. They all want to be the next great white hope that's going to inspire the next attack. We can't let that continue, end quote. So the fact of the matter is that social media companies routinely co cooperate with law enforcement. All major platforms report suspected criminal activity, child exploitation, and violence to the FBI. To take just one example, in the run-up to the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol, both Facebook and Parler referred dozens of accounts to the feds. Parler had shared over 50 tips with the FBI warning of violence in advance of January 6, including one post, for example, that stated, don't be surprised if we take the Capitol building. That's according to a report by the Government Accountability Office, as noted by Just Security. Facebook says it also sent the FBI information regarding potential violence at the Capitol on January 6th, according to that report. So law enforcement had been warned about Gendron as well, not by a social media company, but by his school. Last spring, just before he graduated from high school, Gendron threatened to commit a murder-suicide, according to the New York Times. So he was hospitalized, he was evaluated, and he was eventually released. The matter was referred to the state police, but Gendron, quote, fell off investigators' radar. These developments are eerily similar to the situation with Nicholas Cruz, who committed the mass shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Cruz's erratic, violent behavior was noticed by his family, was noticed by other students, it was noticed by teachers, and it was reported to school security guards, to the local sheriff's office, and even to the FBI itself. Law enforcement simply declined to take action to prevent a known psychopath from carrying out his attack. The see something, say something ideology behind U.S. policing insists that a well-informed and watchful citizenry is expected to actively monitor for threats and report them to law enforcement. When something goes wrong, the people are often blamed for having been inattentive, for missing the signs. But something close to the reverse is usually true. In the Parkland and Buffalo cases and so many others, civilians saw something and they said something. The feds just didn't pay enough attention to them. And that's what's ultimately so frustrating to me about attempts by Hochul and other political figures to find someone else to blame. They're distracting from mistakes that government actors made in service of an agenda that usually involves citizens surrendering more liberties. In fact, with some goading from Chuck Todd, who declined to voice any potential downsides of giving the government a broader mandate to police speech, Hochul issued a fact-free condemnation of so-called hate speech. She said, I'll protect the First Amendment any day of the week, but you don't protect hate speech. You don't protect incendiary speech. You're not allowed to scream fire in a crowded theater. There are limitations on that speech. So there are limitations on speech. It's a shame that New York governors, New, the New York's governor doesn't know what they are. Some incendiary statements, yes, if they rise to the level of true threats of violence, that is illegal. Hate speech, though, is allowed under the First Amendment. The Supreme Court has never recognized hate speech as a separate category of expression that is exempt from protection. It just does not exist. And the fire in a crowded theater reference is one of the most tortured, misunderstood analogies in the English language. It is absolutely permissible to scream fire in a crowded theater, especially if there's an actual fire. So the Buffalo shooting is not a cautionary tale, to my mind, about the dangers of unrestricted speech on the internet, rather a sobering wake-up call about how practically difficult it is for the police to prevent violence, even when warned about it. That New York police did not take this threat seriously enough should prompt self-reflection on the part of law enforcement rather than sweeping condemnation of social media. So that's my frustration, Brianna. Look, 
social media companies, broadly speaking, they do, they ton, like vast majorities of, of, if you check the tip line, like who is alerting the FBI about issues on social media? It's the companies themselves. They're reporting this stuff all the time. People speak up. People say, oh my, this kid is a danger. Like, do something about it. Law enforcement just misses it. And maybe, and, and they'll say, well, what can we do? You know, we can't just imprison everyone who, who, look, who seems unwell. Minority I, reports. Right, I absolutely get that. But, that, but then don't, don't say it's on, it's on non-law enforcement to do more. It's not on the people to do better monitoring. It's on social media to do better monitoring. That's what they're saying. And I'm like, maybe you should put more efforts into like arresting the right people then. You're right. the law enforcement not us. Yeah, I mean, I hate to be that leftist, but this is the argument that so many people have been making, that increasing funding to these police departments often doesn't work. I mean, it never works, but the reason that it often doesn't work is because what is needed isn't necessarily the kind of services the police are trained to provide. So someone saw something, they said something, they reported the Buffalo shooter. He was brought in for a psychological evaluation. What were the resources for ongoing psychological care and follow-up is what I want to know. What were the resources in the school to continue to offer him that care and follow-up or to make some kind of regular home visits the kind of thing that could make him feel supported yes. and potentially even scan for his the availability of guns and access in the right. household what kind of conversations were had with the parents about their responsibility to keep dangerous weapons from him what were other how were other community members alerted so they could keep themselves safe i want to know all those kinds of things but i also suspect that police officers aren't well equipped to carry out those kinds of roles those kind of social support roles and yet i'm sure a lot of people in the wake of this are going to be calling for more gunmen in the school or more resources to the police force, even though they have failed over and over again in these contexts. Right. And that's frustrating, too. We failed, so you should give us more money. Right. That doesn't actually inspire a lot of confidence. Like, you've got right. a lot of money. Why didn't, you know, why doesn't this kid, why don't they check up on him six months later? Why don't they find out, is there a gun in the home? Yeah. Why don't they, well, what is he doing on social media? It's not, that's their responsibility, their law enforcement. Yeah. And at the same time, when so many families, I mean, there's an ongoing, you know, CPS crisis where people feel like there's an, a disproportionate amount of interference in the home in childcare situations. Obviously, that's very delicate because right. there are obviously and there a lot is of situations a lot of where yeah. there needs to be, but it does feel like on the whole, there's a disproportionate um, ass assessment of where resources need to go. And people tend to fall back into these same um, narratives right. of who's at fault here. Now, I do think that video games are an unfair scapegoat and have been since the 1990s. I mean, if given enough rope, people would claim that you know, anodyne games like Legend of Zelda were even a problem. And I know that would really bother you <laughs> as an aficionado, Robbie. But I do think there, there is an interesting conversation yeah. to be had about how the chat features in some of these games are facilitating different kinds of relationships and recruiting efforts the same way that any the telephone, mm -hmm. letters, any kind of communication avenue um, is can possibly be used for these kinds of ends. But I do think the point you made about uh, Parlor and these sites being pretty quick with their notification, Twitch being pretty quick with taking down a stream, given how many streams are ongoing at any given time, and you know uh, how much there is to watch and observe. The fact that they were able to report, get that reported and taken down so quickly, I think is really. Um, it recommends the program, frankly. It's a, it's a real compliment to the program. And it is frustrating to see politicians not come up with any new scripts when nothing has changed right. over the course of right. decades and decades and decades we had to of hear behavior. this. We had to hear about how, well, free speech is one thing, but hate speech is another thing. Again, did, did, have they not taken like the most basic class in constitutional law? Like that's yeah. not a thing. Well, it's not it, a thing. But also the thing is like, okay, hate, you know, if hate speech 
hate speech is protected, but that's a separate conversation from what people should have been do doing in response to the hate mm -hmm. speech. We knew about this guy's mentality. We knew about his kind of political agenda. We knew that he was a troubled kid. He was, you know, and now adult. So it's not that the, the focus on the right. hate speech I think is a little, it's a little off. Right. The fact is that we need to gag and, and muzzle the kid so he doesn't put the hate speech out to the public. It's how does the public respond? What right. kind of institutional supports do we have to respond when we identify this kind of thing as going on? Right. And it's with, with the Nicholas Cruz situation, which is even clearer, like, People, the, the um, Parkland shooter, like people said, this kid is a mass shooter in the making. They said those words mm. to the authority. They, mm. Everyone said, it's going to be this kid. Mm. They, like they knew it was going to be this kid. And then it was. Then it happened. Yeah. Like how much more seeing something, saying something do you want from, from the public? It's responsible yeah. behavior by the people, by so many other, and the authorities just didn't do anything. Yeah. And that's so frustrating. And th then when they're, and then the people who, and obviously, you know, I'm not saying Kathy Hochul's new to the job. She's not necessarily responsible for the state police kind of bungling this investigation. But don't just don't start turning it on on to other onto other things like in, if it's a matter of investing more in the state police, at least say that. I, I don't know that I agree with that as a policy, but propose that propose having law enforcement do something because ultimately they're responsible for this. Can you imagine a world where in the wake of a tragedy like this, a politician said, we have to take a good, hard look at what policies <laughs> enable this kind of thing to continue. Obviously, something isn't right. And I'm, we're going to introspect and come back to you with a full uh, report right. from, the, from the government, from the police department, to see how we should go forward with this in the future. Like, can you just imagine? Like, I, I think that they believe that there would be politi po negative political ramifications for just being honest and just taking the moment to say, we, this is a senseless act of violence. It could have been anticipated. It's obvious that there were warning signs, and we need to get serious as a community about how to address those in a more meaningful it, manner. In the Parkland situation, they couldn't even get the sheriff to resign. The sheriff, uh, who is a just jerk, the, the word I was going to say, a word I can't, I don't know that I can stand <laughs> it, who trained the school resource officer who hid while this was, who did not intervene, who hid while this was happening. The sheriff who trained him refused to resign. Ron DeSantis uh, swore to fire him if he became governor, and then, even though it was tremendously difficult to fire this public employee, who absolutely should have resigned in disgrace, in hor horrific disgrace for, for his office's failing, one of many failings in the situation, would not resign. Um, Ron DeSantis forced him out, which I approved of. But they never, they never, so that's just a long way of saying they never take responsibility yeah. for these things. Yeah. Or for anything else. Well, thank you for that, Robbie. I, I really enjoyed that radar, and we will have more rising after this. New York officials announced yesterday that masks are back on the table as the city heads toward a high-risk designation for COVID transmission in their calculation. And though cases are climbing with an average of 200 infections per 100,000 people, hospitalizations appear to be declining according to New York City Health. The seven-day daily average was 58 as of yesterday, and that's down from 28 daily average of 65 per week. Deaths remained about the same, slightly lowered from four deaths daily to three deaths daily. So that's the situation. Um, but they, I thought they were citing increasing hospitalizations. Yeah, I think that, so. that stat sounded like it was, it's down over the immediate week before. Right. But I think there was an overall trend in growth. So it looks like it's down a little bit from literally last week. Right. But the overall trend has been concerning because it's not just uh, an infection rate 
it's a hospitalization rate, and that's what's putting the stress on the um, you know, medical system and all of those kinds of things, which were our primary concern even in the post-vaccine days when the you know, the implications for any individual were much less severe than they had been before. Yeah. I mean, I, I've continued to check DC's data, and for the entire, basically the entire last year, our death rate has been the same. There was a slight uptick um, in the latter Delta stage, but we've hovered around like one or zero deaths per week. Right. But then, you know, there needs to be a more fulsome conversation. Many people in the disability community have been saying that there's not enough conversation that's going on about long COVID. And some folks even say that it's somewhat suspicious that the Biden administration and public health officials aren't emphasizing those effects more because there is this kind of financial and economic incentive to make sure everything keeps going and keep running, keeps running, especially during a midterm season where Joe Biden knows so much of his electability, uh, the Democrats' electability is hinging on this idea that he successfully defeated COVID. So there are a lot of competing interests here that I think are making people really unsure of what to believe or what to do to feel safe. Yeah, I don't know how you could, even if the, even if the situation was a little bit worse than it is now, I mean, any kind of, uh, thankfully, it's not really being talked about, but shutting things down again, I mean, how much more can our social fabric possibly fray with all the antisocial behavior, uh, the rise in just the the way people are behaving is not right. And it is so clearly a pandemic, a, a symptom of what we've gone through. I don't see how we could put people through that again. What do you make about hitting this uh, million death mark, you know, when the 100,000 mark was hit, you know, a year and a half or so ago, whenever that was, and you had the front page New York Times story, it was framed as this like devastating consequence uh, of heroic, in a heroic, historic proportions for the United States of America. And now we're at a million, and it does seem like there is a disconnect between what has happened and how many people have lost loved ones and the prevailing rhetoric about the virus being inconsequential. It's, it is not inconsequential. It's highly consequential. It's perhaps the most consequential thing that's happened in our in our lifetimes is a once in a century calamity that has killed a million people. Um, you know, we absolutely should talk about what could have been done, if anything, to mitigate that. But it the stage we're at now, this is a very, very contagious, highly transmissible disease. It is hard to prevent to you can certainly take steps to reduce your odds of getting it. It's very it's I think it's hard to reduce them significantly, absent the total, absolute zero COVID lockdown kind of mentality that China has tried and, and, and is doing and is you know, making people absolutely miserable. And it is not something anyone wants to do here. There's no public appetite to do that here, which means people, it is going to spread. There are going to be rises and, and, and then falling as, as waves come through. I mean, it's, it's just the reality. No one wants this to be the reality, but it just it is the reality. I don't know what what more you can expect of people or ask them to do other than, you know, get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated, get your booster if you're in a com- compromised category. We should absolutely be working on the next generation of vaccines or different vaccines, the ones that will be, if people are, the ones people are reluctant to take the mRNA, you know, what alternatives are there? Let's keep up with the changing virus. I support all that. Well, the one thing, the one thing that people could do absent those kind of more 
severe shutdown type interventions is doing increased masking, you know, and I have observed, you know, in the last few days or so, it does seem to me that there's been an increase in people putting masks back on. And I appreciate that the advice there, obviously masks aren't back officially, but the, the recommendation is to wear a higher quality mask, which is not a distinction that they had been making before. And I think it's something that has driven a lot of the, uh, you know, research that shows that masks don't work. I mean, we got cloth masks, <laughs> obviously, are not but as don't effective. You, don't you want, right. Now we now it's okay to say you're allowed to admit it. You were not allowed to admit it previously. We could get the whole channel shut down if we'd said it. You were not allowed to say that, that masks don't work. You were, you were supposed to be, yeah, masks are great. Any mask, just get a mask. And that was, the, that was the wisdom for a full year, a year plus. Don't you, does part of you wonder if a year or two from now we'll say the same thing about, so that turned out to be wrong. Maybe, but we'll I just, say I really about the, can... the higher quality masks. Right. We will know, look, I, I'm checking the evidence too. They seem to be doing, I, I think they somewhat reduce well, the I mean, spread. I don't know how much they actually do. It would, it would not surprise me to find out in the future, to look back and go, that wasn't doing as much right. as so some people thought. What we, what we do know is what our health practitioners have been doing, and they have been consistently using the higher quality of masks, at least after the very beginning portion where there were all of these um, supply issues. But they have been exposed to COVID at a higher rate than other people, obviously, as they are treating COVID patients and in a hospital setting. And they have had the benefit of using these higher quality masks and have not succumbed at the rate of most of the population as a consequence of Is it. So true? I do think we have this natural built-in. I mean, they have a higher exposure rate. But there are people who every single day go in and work with COVID patients and aren't getting reinfected every three weeks like uh, Stephen Colbert, LOL. Well, well because I, most people, I don't think, can get if you've been infected, you have a, a, a we no natural immunity is, right. a, is a very, is actually a really good, de- buys you weeks at least, maybe probably months in a lot of cases, could be a year plus. Uh, I don't, it, most of the people I know who are doctors and nurses have at some point gotten COVID, right? It's, it's, I don't know, I don't, that hasn't been my experience with, you know, I've got a friend who's a dentist who hasn't gotten COVID, which feels. I mean, you're you, and you haven't gotten it yet, so you're a unique holdout. And I haven't holdout. gotten it yet, but also, you know, I'm I am unique. She I knows don't. She's doomed sitting I, next to me. I don't have kids that are out in the world right. and bringing it home to the household. I don't live with a partner. I don't have to be exposed other than now coming and doing this job. So, you know, I know that I'm in circumstances that other people can't be in, but the fact that I am in those circumstances and have been able to take a kind of maximalist precaution view and not gotten it, I, it's obviously just one person, but it does seem to me to be some indication that some combination of wearing higher masks and engaging in certain kinds of behaviors is protective. Now, obviously that's a choice that people can make, but all I was saying is that I appreciate the recommendations now are more specific about the kinds of interventions that are more narrowly tailored to actually be effective. Well, and I appreciate that, obviously, people who work in hospital who know they are coming into contact with people who are symptomatic for COVID, that's the kind of people who come to the hospital, well, yes, it makes sense for them to take extraordinary precautions uh, that wouldn't, I don't think, make sense for just ordinary people to do. So that, that makes perfect sense to me. But it, I don't even know that that, again, probably reduced, absolutely spread likelihood. I, I there absolutely have been outbreaks in hot. There are people well, getting sick and because you know it's new. These aren't perfect systems, yeah. but the New York Times is reporting that because of the spread of Omicron, uh, people could get multiple infections sometimes within just months of each other. This is the point Robbie was just making. Earlier in the pandemic, experts thought natural immunity from vaccination or previous infections would stall most reinfections. 
But according to the New York Times, Omicron has thrown a major curveball to the science. Now, that's, of course, a report from Apoorva Mandavilli, who I think is the New York Times' most um, a catastrophizing uh, writer on this subject. Writer Matt Iglesias said on Twitter, quote, when the mRNA vaccines first arrived, it happened so rapidly that we got excited about the ability to pivot rapidly to new variant optimized vaccines if necessary. Now we have new highly transmissible variants that significantly reduce existing vaccines effect, uh, efficacy and crickets. So he's making the point that, yes, we need to roll out a next generation of vaccines, which clearly we do. I mean, Yes, and I think that the conversation about how they might not be free going forward is frustrating. And I know that's 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 my, my my only hesitation. Like I really appreciate a lot of the conversations that you've instigated about the failures in the the, the broad tailoring as opposed to the narrowly narrow tailoring that would be ideal with some of the COVID intervention measures. But I do think sometimes I wish we were, not we, but the broader community were having a more robust conversation about how quickly the government is going to try to withdraw those things that they have been offering up for free in the name of you know decreasing COVID. Because now there is just such a strong political investment that the Biden administration has into pretending that COVID is over, that there is an enormous amount of incentive to say we're going to downplay all of these interventions, including the ones like vaccines that have been free and life-saving. And I just hope that the pendulum doesn't swing so far in the direction of being suspicious of the government uh, for pushing COVID and lockdowns, that we're not suspicious of the government's investment in declining to pretend like an ongoing health crisis isn't an ongoing health crisis. Sure. I can't think of a better thing for the government to spend public money on researching new vaccines and making them broadly available to the public without without mandates and without other sort of intervention, other mandated interventions. Obviously, anyone who wants to wear a mask should feel free to do so. I hope it works for them. I hope it helps them out. It's just, it's sometimes treated like a moral failing if you get it. And like, every, I think well, no, everybody's going to get it. Not. Everybody's going to get it. The, the most masks, the least masks people get it. Of course. It's, it's an absolutely not a moral failing. I'm not superior. When I, when I talk about my circumstances, it's to say that I'm not superior for not having gotten it. I'm just in a weird circumstance yeah. as a, a person who lives alone and right. who, who, you know, I just is have, not among as the people, I, I mean, you're maybe an exception, but among the people I know, who've got it, which is virtually everyone I know at this point. It, it, there was not a discernible difference to me by, between the, like the, the deeply irresponsible and the you know, militantly locked down and masked up people. And you haven't they have noticed, all gotten it. My observation regardless. is a lot of folks in the last month or so are popping up. A lot of like hardcore liberals are like, who, who, who have been kind of zealous about this. Yeah. Oh, I finally got it. After two years, I finally got it. And to me, and again, this is anecdotal, it does feel like when we were told to stop taking some of the precautions that people, some people had been taking up to present, they finally succumbed. And I do feel a certain degree of peer pressure to say, oh, well, let me not, you know, wear it. And it feels right. antisocial to wear a mask in the elevator the way I was doing. It feels antisocial to wear it, you know, when I got my nails done yesterday. But it does, I, I, I don't want that peer pressure to affect what I still think is the best decision making for but myself. Also everybody trying to just... Stay in their own it also coincides with higher transmissibility, right? I mean, the, the Delta was, didn't they say seven times or so? I can't remember the exact yeah. statistic, but some wildly higher rate of infection right. for Delta versus the original strain, Omicron even higher, and we're going to be dealing with, so maybe our interventions uh, were, were suitable to, and we're taking a, a chunk out of the original strain. I, I can believe that. Yeah. And, and, and we're more justified because we didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't have vaccines. It, it was 
killing people. I mean, it's still killing people, obviously, but it, it, it was how do, we, how do we protect people who are at risk? It, the, the risk pool seemed much higher, given that we didn't have anyone vaccinated. It just isn't. Isn't quite the case. I, I do think it's funny that when we're talking about the kind of morals, morality and the judgmentality that is, has emerged around mask culture, but on the airplanes, they announce, you know, you don't have to wear a mask, but please don't judge anybody else for their choices. I read that as don't yell at people wearing masks to take off their masks, which is not the way that this kind of thing is usually covered. The implication is always that the mask people are the ones being the aggressors, but there is definitely some, some peer pressure that's no. being thrown around in all directions. So uh, I, everyone just be nice to each other. I've flown, I've flown every, uh, every weekend this month, I think, and uh, I've, I've been enjoying my maskless flights. And I, I'd say probably it's about 50% uh, masked and unmasked which is lower mask rate than I saw some survey of saying like three in five people would, would still wear a mask if on a plane. Well, I guess a lot of those people aren't flying at all because it's lower than that from what I've seen. As long as they bring back peanuts. <laughs> Coming up next, we'll discuss new polling on President Biden's approval numbers and how the inflation is impacting views on the direction of the country. Our rising panel will join us for that. Stick around. New White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre found herself in the hot seat yesterday when facing questions from Fox News' Peter Ducey on inflation. Let's watch. Uh, the president's Twitter account posted the other day, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Mm-hmm. How does raising taxes on corporations reduce inflation? Um, so... Are you talking about a specific tweet? He tweeted, you want to bring down inflation, let's make sure the wealthiest corporations pay their fair share. Look, you know, we have talked about, um, we have talked about this this past year, uh, about um, making sure that the wealthiest among us are paying their fair share. Um, and that is important to do, and uh, that is something that uh, you know the president has been you know working on uh, every day when we talk about inflation and lowering costs. And so it's very important uh, that uh, you know as we're seeing costs rise, uh, as we're talking about how to you know uh, you know build a, a America that's safe, that's equal for everyone, and doesn't leave everyone behind. That is an important part of that as well. New Pew Research polling shows that inflation is still Americans' top concern, with no other issue even coming close. It makes sense, then, that President Biden's approval rating continues to falter. NBC News polling shows it now dipping to 39%. That same survey also found that a sobering 75% of Americans believe the country is headed in the wrong direction. Yikes. Here with their reaction is our rising panel. Jordan Cheriton is a journalist and CEO of Status Coup News. And Philip Wegman is a White House reporter for Real Clear Politics. Welcome to you both. Thank you, sir. So, uh, Phil, I don't know if you were in the room. How do you think uh, uh, Jean-Pierre is doing uh, in, this, in this new role? Um, I, I, I thought she had a, a couple rough answers com- compared to Saki, but I, I can't remember. Maybe Saki was a little rough at her start, too. So I'm going to be completely honest with you. When I heard Peter's question, I didn't really look up or pay attention because I thought this is a softball. This is going to be um, a easy question to answer because we know how Jen Psaki would have replied. We know uh, how Brian Deese would have fielded that question. In all likelihood, they would have said something succinct about how you want a higher tax rate for some of these corporations because that creates a more equitable economy uh, and that allows more people the opportunity to get ahead and have a fair shot. And that's the way that you combat 
about inflation. Or maybe they would have taken it a step farther and said, you want a, a higher tax rate on these corporations because that would necessarily tamp down demand and that's the way to fight inflation. But instead, we didn't get that. And if you listen to the entire uh, answer and the entire back and forth, you saw Kareen uh, talk about you know, climate change, the importance of collective bargaining, the marginal tax rates for cops, but she didn't really uh, close the loop and, and make a, a cohesive answer. Now, is this going to sink her or define her tenure? No, not at all. Um, Saki had some, some rough goes early on as well. But uh, the Biden administration says that tackling inflation is their number one priority, and you would expect a cohesive and succinct answer about why the Biden administration thinks that hiking these tax rates on corporations is the right way to go. We didn't get that yesterday. Jordan, you spend more time than most talking to voters one-on-one. -on -one. What kind of message on inflation do you think would actually be effective? Yeah, I mean, we've been hearing about corporations paying their fair share since we were all born. Uh, so I don't really think that's necessarily going to excite people right now. Uh, I think a message of, you know what, these companies are making record profits uh, every quarter. So maybe we need to start taking away their subsidies and taking the savings and giving it to American citizens through checks uh, to get them through uh, these tough times of inflation, particularly the oil companies that are making record profits, but somehow uh, have, you know, $4.50 in California, six, $7 a gallon. Uh, maybe they don't need the subsidies at this point since they're making such profits. I really think that uh, kind of messaging could help as well as direct relief uh, to Americans. Uh, they did it during COVID. I don't see why they wouldn't when uh, you have $7 gas uh, and obviously groceries and other things uh, very, very high. Philip, what do you say about that? Because I have seen some efforts from Democrats in California, for instance, to offer some relief, gas relief, things like that. And there's been some pushback from some conservative politicians that that sort of thing is a giveaway, that Democrats are trying to buy votes. You know, what is the relationship there between what folks obviously need, which is some economic support in a time of high inflation and all kinds of crises ranging from, you know, gas limitations to baby formula limitations and the Republican line, which seems to be from some quarters at least, that supporting voters in that way is somehow a handout that folks shouldn't appreciate. Right. And I think Republicans would say, well, we're in a very different spot than we were during the earlier days of the pandemic. Now that relief check that was supposed to get everyone through a lockdown would be an impediment to returning to work and getting the economy humming. That's what a Republican would likely say. But um, on the question of these oil companies, I think that the Biden administration, they're in a tough spot here, right? Because they do want to point out that these corporations are making record profits. They do want to um, point out that some of the federal land leases that they have, that, that, that those corporations aren't making the most with them. And yet at the same time, um, you know, because gas is so much higher, uh, they are in a spot where they're, they're sort of like trying to encourage them to produce more in the moment while also saying to their base, look, we're, we're totally going to transition from fossil fuels later on once, you know, we're, we're through the Putin price hike. But for now, yeah, uh, you know, drill, baby, drill, and, and maybe things will be different later. I think that the, the prudential question of what is happening in the exact moment when you have gas that is ticking up above $4 
that makes a lot of these sort of ideological questions of, you know, what are we going to do permanently long term? That makes those different to have conversations about that. And uh, I, I think that, you know, th there are, are moments where the administration is willing to say, well, you know, let's tap the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. But are they willing to go, you know, a step farther in terms of direct relief and, and cut checks again? Um, no, I, I, not at this point, I don't think. Well, here's some more bad news for Democrats. New NBC polling measured the public's opinion on nine different political figures and institutions, including Joe Biden, Donald Trump, the Supreme Court, and Vladimir Zelensky. The most unpopular in terms of net favorables was the Democratic Party. I should have put nickel back in there just, just to see. <laughs> just to see. Uh, that's, I think that's really bad news for the Democratic Party, obviously. You know, Jordan, what do you make of that? I, I think, so my sense is that Americans just do not feel like the administration, Biden, and thus the Democratic Party, are taking inflation seriously enough. I, I think there was, uh, they were late to the party about on uh, the baby formula shortage is now a, a you know a huge deal, absolutely affecting working families. And it, it, Jen Psaki, I think, fielded that question last week and was like, "Oh yeah, we're doing something about it." Well, what? Well, what? And there, you know, there's so much attention to to Ukraine. Oh, Ukraine's going to get you know billions because they need that. Okay, fine. But you know, what? How how much more suffering can? people actually stand here. The party doesn't seem like it's paying attention or like it has a plan. Yeah, I mean, I think this underscores and Brianna certainly knows, uh, you know, the media kind of sold that uh, Joe Biden was the most electable. But in reality, if you look at exit polls from 2020, uh, people didn't really vote out of love for Joe Biden in the Democratic Party. They, they voted to get remove Donald Trump. And uh, pretty early on, uh, beyond just inflation, uh, President Biden kind of abandoned some of his baseline promises from a $15 minimum wage, just unilaterally removing that from uh, major bills. Uh, you don't hear about a public option, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So of course, inflation right now is a major thing. But when, you know, even your, uh, my, even your uh, campaign promises, the top one, which was a $15 minimum wage, uh, that was out the door right early on. Uh, it really, it really uh, gives voters a focus on the Democratic Party, uh, you know, elitism out of touchness rather than delivering. Say what you want about Trump. He followed through on his promises, whereas Biden, sure, you could say 50-50 Senate, but it, it, he didn't really even fight for, for those major things. So that makes, uh, when you couple that with the inflation now, which there's not a ton Biden can do, uh, the numbers make a lot of sense. Yeah, it does seem yeah, like the flip side of him trying to exculpate himself by saying, hey, it's not my fault that Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are holding everything up, is that he's also saying to voters, there's nothing I can do. I'm, I'm in it. I, if you vote for me again, I'm, there's going to be more of the same thing. So while you have some folks that are be beating the vote for more Democrats drum, they've also really put the message out there in a way that's destructive to their own interests, that Democrats are ineffectual. They know they're ineffectual. Unlike Donald Trump, Joe Biden very early on was explicit about his unwillingness to use executive orders in the way that Donald Trump had done. So student debt cancellation being this huge issue and this popular issue that could directly affect the lives of 44 million Americans, 44 million potential voters, um, is treated as like a kind of silly, you know, bet noir that's stalking the Democratic Party instead of a real political opportunity. Philip. What do you think about this? 
I think you nailed it on the head right there because you have this unwillingness to pick up the the uh, pen and the phone in the same way that President Obama did in, in some of these areas. Obviously, I know progressives were, were not completely thrilled with everything he did, but there's a, there's a hesitancy um, by President Biden to do that. And then there's uh, a, a realization, um, you know, he said the other day, yeah, I know I know why uh, voters are blaming me for inflation because we control the House, the Senate, and the White House. And then he had to immediately correct himself and say, well, you know, we don't totally control the Senate. You know, I don't have control over all of those votes. Um, he, he's a bit hamstrung there. I think that this leads to an interesting question for what comes next. What happens when we wake up in 2023 and perhaps um, one or both chambers are controlled by Republicans? What does Biden then do? Do you see him lean into executive action? Does he flex those muscles, um, which is going to lead to you know a, a backlash and, and maybe um, a lack of a working relationship with whoever, you know, with with you know whatever uh, Republicans want to do in Congress, um, or does he sort of moderate and does he look for areas where he can sort of compromise with Republicans? Um, thus far, I don't think we have a, a good answer on that. Um, what we've heard, whether it's from Build Back Better or to you know trying to codify uh, Roe, is a sort of "woe is me" message from from this administration, where they say, "Well, if, if only." We, we had a super majority in the Senate. We could actually do what we promised you on the campaign trail. Well, got to leave it there. Philip, Jordan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks thank you. Us. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Twitter CEO Parag Agrawal sent a flurry of tweets yesterday in a response to Elon Musk's move to put his offer to buy the company for $44 billion on hold until he had more information about the amount of spam accounts on the platform. Musk says he estimates at least 20% of Twitter accounts are actually spam, but Agrawal said the number is less than 5%. Musk tweeted over the weekend that he was going to run his own tests to determine the true number of bots on Twitter by sampling 100 random accounts that follow uh, the at Twitter handle, according to Bloomberg News. The pause on the Twitter deal comes after Agarwal emailed staff and said the company planned to pause hiring besides vital positions and would potentially take back offers that were already out and that two top executives were leaving. Hmm. What do you, uh, Kim, I haven't asked you this yet. Do you think Musk is going to try to get out of this and that's what's going on here? No, I think he's, he's negotiating for a lower a lower price tag mm. on Twitter. And I think it's smart. I mean, look, of course, you've got to know the product that you're buying. And if it's true that it's up to 20%, I have a hard time believing it's 20%. That that seems, well, I guess maybe of inactive accounts, inactive bot accounts, possibly 20% are, are these kind of bot fake accounts. But uh, certainly, I think that that would drive down the price if it turns out that that high of a number are actually bots on the platform gotta know what you're buying and if it's a dud product right uh, but I, I mean i think we all know yeah. twitter works especially since part of musk's plan is to shift toward a model where more people are using it as a subscription service you need active users if you're oh, expecting right. to make money off of people buying twitter blue or whatever these subscription services are to get you additional features as opposed to using a kind of straight advertising model yeah. yeah, that's an excellent point, right? Because that you you would factor that a certain percentage of the user base are going to subscribe. And if that if that number is false, if it's mm -hmm. inflated because so many of them are bots and you've got a problem with the price tag of Twitter. So I think he's just trying to lower that price tag. But Robbie, you think he's trying to get out of this? 
No, I don't know exactly what I think. I, I think there's a, a higher likelihood, maybe than you think, that the deal just doesn't go go forward. Um, it's it's hard to know. You're right. He could be doing exactly that. Something, something. Maybe it's just something tells me this is going to be too good to be true, right? We'll look back at the at the one month period where it looked like Elon Musk was going to ride in on a, a white horse and and put change Twitter's policies to to something I would prefer. And maybe I'm just used to being disappointed. I don't know. And it's it's nothing beyond that. (laughs) It's kind of the same thing, right? I mean, the idea of trying to lower the price and getting out of it. I mean, it's I want to lower the price or else I'm not going to do it. It could be framed as trying to get out of the deal, basically not wanting to take the deal at the price point that he initially entered into it at is is kind of, I think, what folks are seeing here. Uh, So we definitely wanted to get to this. So at the same time as this is happening, a Twitter senior engineer allegedly told an undercover journalist that Twitter does not believe in free speech. Let's take a look at this. Twitter does not believe in free speech. What do you mean? Capitalists, we weren't really operating in a capitalist mode. We were very socialist. Like, we're all like communist. All right, so I have a lot of thoughts about this. So, this is Project Veritas. This is James O'Keefe doing one of those undercover things where, you know, it looks like. He has some person working for him who's at a bar or restaurant with this guy, secretly recording him. And, I mean, the guy is telling us things we basically already know, that there's a lot of hostile employees at – there's a lot of liberal employees at Twitter, some of them uh, hostile to conservative speech. I don't – you know, he's going to get this guy possibly fired for this, and this this person seems like a a reasonable person, so I – feel bad. I also I don't so I don't know what the huge news value here is in doing this kind of thing. Also, if you take someone to drinks and and, and you're, you know, engaging them in conversation, you could get anybody to badmouth their employers, right? So of course. so it's not if it's it's deceptively obtained, you have to take it with Right. Even people. So I I don't. This is my whole problem with some of the stuff James O'Keefe does. Not that there's no news value ever. Some of the stuff is more interesting than others. But I didn't find this particularly illustrative. And, you know, what does it mean? Right. What does it mean? First of all, what is the alleged relationship between capitalism and free speech? I'm not really clear what that means. There are any number of capitalist countries. Most countries are capitalist countries. And we would hardly sit here and say that the. Speech is a protected right in the majority of them. Certainly in even similarly situated progressive countries in the UK, et cetera, they don't have the same kind of speech protections as we have here. So I'm not even sure what that's supposed to mean. Moreover, I would love to hear this guy's definition of communism. I mean, it just, it's just an off-the-cup statement. Oh, that's what bothered statement. you. You, you, no, you didn't like the dicks of communism. Yeah, like, <laughs> truly just explain yourself, sir. I was using, I think, commie as shorthand for woke or, you know, whatever. Right, right. So or, talking or controlling. Out of the, Authoritarian, maybe yeah. you know. I, right. I mean, so not, but, not but knowing have, what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. we, 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 we've had uh, you know Ryan and I have interviewed O'Keefe on the show before. I, I've tangled with him in the past. I'm not saying there is no news value to what he does. Uh, I, I I'm absolutely not saying that. It's just, but in cases like this, I don't know what 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 do you make yeah, of it, Kim? I mean, you're right. There's no news value in this. This is something we already knew. We already knew that Twitter was censoring. That's why Elon Musk coming in, riding on his white horse, saying he's going to save the day, has so many people excited because we know that Twitter is a place where they censor quite a bit based on their political leanings of the people that are actually running the joint, right? So, 
yeah, this isn't really news. I just feel really bad for these people that get caught on camera like this. I mean, is this guy ever going to have a job again? Yeah, Certainly he's I, not going to work at Twitter, right? And then right. we're I out, feel bad for him, too. And he wasn't doing anything wrong. And you should – there's some expectation of privacy in a setting like that. You know, don't – don't trust. Uh, don't. I actually, I had an experience uh, this weekend. I was I was uh, flying back to D.C. I was in an airport, and uh, I was sitting. I realized I was sitting like at a restaurant down, or I was at the bar, and I knew uh, one of the people there it was another kind of like D.C. journalist figure, and I knew exact. The person was clearly thought his conversation. There's nobody around him in his vicinity who could possibly know the people he's talking about. I knew exactly who he was talking about, and he did, he just went on his way, boarded his plane. So you gotta you gotta you gotta yeah. be more private than you expect. I guess there's certainly the no no expectation of privacy in the bar or in your womb in the United States of America. Whoa, <laughs> in 2022. Whoa, whoa. Well, Musk has also been in the spotlight for something he said about President Joe Biden in a podcast interview yesterday. Musk, who said he was voted overwhelmingly, has voted overwhelmingly for Democrats, suggests that Biden is an empty suit. He said, quote, the real president is whoever controls the teleprompter and that the Biden administration doesn't seem to get anything done. Hmm. Hmm. I think that's fair. <laughs> no lies detected. <laughs> no lies detected. Yeah. It just yeah. seems like that's a that's probably an accurate statement. I mean, Joe Biden, how many times has Joe Biden st stood up there and said, oh, am I, I, I'm supposed to take a question now or I'm supposed to leave now or I'm supposed to I'm supposed to do X, Y, Z thing like who's telling you what you're supposed to do? You're the president of the United States. So who is controlling him? That's he what does I does use I, the language of, like of someone who's being very carefully handled. Is, yeah. is how he describes his interactions. It, it's that, but I also do think it's that he's he's Gaff Biden. He's Mr. Gaff, and I think and that he leans into it. He's he's I think gotten corralled by folks who say don't say this, don't say that, not because he's necessarily under more or less control, but because he is someone who has gone off script in destructive ways in the past. So he often, I think, feels a tension between what he thinks is right and what his political instincts are and what his handlers think, and I. I think that he is unwilling to actually bend the knee in some respects. So he 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 toes that like he he splits the difference by saying I'm not supposed to say this, but they don't like it when I say this, but and that's what we get. But to to the big the the broader point, he has telegraphed substantively over and over again that he has no power and that he's not going to do anything despite having both uh, houses and the presidency because of Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. He has basically abdicated all authority over his presidency to them by saying that he can't get anything done because they're the holdouts and also by refusing to use executive action, something that he said he was going to do in the beginning for no reason at all, no principled reason. He just said he wasn't going to do it. So he has telegraphed to the public that he is an empty suit. And now he's asking people to go ahead and vote for a neutered Democratic Party for reasons this fall. And unless, as we've talked about at length on this show, unless they come up with some pretty significant reasons of how that's going to change anything going forward, they're going to be in big trouble. Big trouble indeed. Does not look good. Anything can happen between now and November, but not looking too good. Uh, but we will have more rising in just a minute. Stay with us. Well, four-time vaccinated Stephen Colbert came down with COVID twice in the past few weeks. Yep, you heard me right. Colbert, known for his vaccine pushing and vaccine shaming, came down with COVID twice in the span of three weeks. Colbert first announced he had COVID on April 21st with this tweet. Yep, I tested positive for COVID, but basically I'm feeling fine. Grateful to be vaxxed and boosted. Thank you for the well wishes. 
Colbert took about 10 days off to recover from the virus, which he later described as a serious head cold. He took the Pfizer treatment drug Paxlovid, then said he tested negative on day six of his isolation. He was back in the studio taping shows on May 2nd. But then a week later on May 9th, production was halted again until further notice because Stephen had what's been called a recurrence of COVID. Now, last Monday, The Late Show tweeted out, Stephen is experiencing symptoms consistent with the recurrence of COVID. Out of an abundance of caution for his staff, guests, and audience, we will be he will be isolating for a few additional days. The Late Show will not be taping new episodes until further notice. Colbert called it the worst sequel ever, I bet. Well, maybe you've heard about these recurrences lately. They're considered extremely rare, but we've heard that phrase before. Turns out the treatment drug Paxlovid, which is made by Pfizer, has a problem. Paxlovid is the early treatment that was given emergency use authorization back in December after clinical trials showed it reduced severe COVID outcomes by 89% in unvaccinated adults. It's a five-day treatment of three pills taken twice a day for five days at the earliest onset of symptoms. It doesn't work if you take it too late. You reportedly have to take it early. The treatment is a combination of two different medications. One drug is a new inhibitor that prevents the virus from replicating, and the other is a repurposed HIV drug, ritonavir, which is used to boost the efficacy of the inhibitor drug. For HIV, ritonavir combined with the HIV-specific inhibitor doesn't get rid of the virus. We know this, HIV hasn't been cured yet. What it does is turn the HIV cells dormant to the point where they're undetectable. But if you stop taking your HIV medication, the dormant cells will wake up and begin making copies of themselves again. Now, of course, HIV is a different virus. It doesn't go away on its own like COVID eventually does, but a good number of people taking Paxlovid seem to be experiencing a rebound of the virus after it gets to the point of being undetectable. However, the scientists and the doctors say they don't know why this is happening. According to the Wall Street Journal, the health experts say they aren't sure if the relapsed patients are contagious, nor are they sure what causes the rebounds. They say maybe patients are taking Paxlovid too early or not long enough. The experts also don't know how common the rebounds are. Pfizer says its real-world data indicates the relapses occur in fewer than one in 3,000 patients. But again, we've heard this phrase throughout the pandemic that something is extremely rare, like getting the virus after being vaccinated or having a case of myocarditis, and it turns out these events are more common than they first appear. So my guess is people get the virus, they go to the doctor to get Paxlovid, they get sick a little while later and suffer through it privately without reporting it to the officials, like most people who caught the virus. So it's impossible for them to know how many people are truly having these relapses, but they are. And more importantly, Pfizer, the manufacturer, doesn't know why. Could it be that they're prescribing Paxlovid to vaccinated and boosted adults when the clinical trials were only conducted on the unvaccinated? It's possible. They don't know why it's happening. And that's sort of been the theme throughout this pandemic. There's a lot of unknowns when it comes to the vaccines and the treatments, yet if anyone raised questions, they were shamed by people like Stephen Colbert, who was once again COVID-free and back to work, by the way. Now, how many of us were shamed and accused of being anti-science for saying the vaccines don't stop the spread? Believe it or not, people are still being mandated by their employers to get the vaccine. Schools are still requiring boosters for college students. And yet day after day, more and more fully vaccinated, even quadruple dosed like Stephen Colbert, are falling ill with COVID. Of course, rather than admit they were wrong and that they forced us into taking a vaccine under the false pretense that it would end the pandemic, the new phrase is, but thank God for the vax because it could be so much worse. 
Though this may be true for many high-risk older folks whose lives have been saved by the vaccine, there is no statistical evidence for younger, low-risk cohorts that this is true, yet everyone keeps saying it. Just recently, Johnson & Johnson was limited due to the possibility of fatal blood clotting. Those blood clots happened in women in their 30s and 40s who were otherwise at no real risk of severe COVID outcomes. Many of us knew about these risks and have been discussing them for over a year. Many of us women in this age group opted to avoid the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for this reason and were called anti-science, anti-vaxxers. Yet here we are a year later and the government finally agrees with us. Well, what will they agree with us in another year's time? That's the big question. Now, one thing to note, Robbie and Bree, is that Paxlovid, you know, uh, the, the clinical trials were conducted. Uh, they were conducted only on the unvaccinated people. They then started giving it out to vaccinated people without any sort of clinical data on this whatsoever. So we don't actually know, you know, they're, they're now collecting that real world data, which is what they're saying. They're saying, well, you know, we're now trying to find out how many people does this not totally work on and you know what it what is it what's causing this problem we don't know um that's you know and that that i think is bothersome to so many of us that they they push these drugs out there they say well we're learning on the go it's an emergency so we have to fine fair enough but why did the fda just the other day for example refuse to authorize fluvoxamine for emergency use authorize use authorization citing lack of data when they had that same problem with Paxlovid. What is it about Paxlovid besides the obvious? I think that there's just a lot of money to be made with Paxlovid versus fluvoxamine. Why is it that, you know, we're still going through this rigmarole with the FDA with, and then, you know, they're, they're demonizing drugs like fluvoxamine where many doctors that are using it saying, you know, this is actually working. Some people can't take Paxlovid. They say Paxlovid's our first choice, but some people can't take it. It, it interferes with their drugs. They need something else. Here's another alternative. Maybe it's not great. It's not It's not the best, but 30% reduction is better than no reduction, right? So, you know, we're still kind of going through this learning as we go, yet the people that question are still being called anti-science uh, deniers and that they just need, and everybody just needs to, you know, still get in line and, and shape up and, and, you know, stop being so, such terrible human beings. Right. I mean, I, I'm still just trying to understand all of this. Well, your point about the money is a good one. Paxlovid, I just looked it up. They, Pfizer stands to make $22 billion from it, which is a substantial portion, about 20% wow. of its total, $102 billion projected revenue for the year. So if you know high-profile people like Stephen Colbert are saying that they're taking Paxlovid and having these recurrent infections, that certainly doesn't, uh, it's not going to inspire investors about their bottom line. Well, and just the fact that the, that they never tested it even on vaccinated people, and yet they've rolled it out to make all that money without even uh, batting an eyelash. They're just saying, all right, well, hey, if, it's, if it worked for the unvaccinated, it'll work for the vaccinated. They don't, how do they know this? They don't know. We're finding out as we go. Yeah, and they should just disclose that. Like, I'm all for people wanting to, you know, if you want to try, that should be on you. You should have all the relevant information, talk to it about your doctor, and then you should be able to do whatever you want. I don't like the excessive gatekeeping of the FDA, but you're absolutely right that there, you know, there are preferred um, treatments and things, and sometimes those are preferred for good reasons. But we have to, you know, it's not it's not conspiratorial or anything to probe a little further. And well, because the FDA has an agenda, it has a bureaucratic agenda. It has, you know, these pharmaceutical manufacturers have an agenda too. Sometimes those agendas uh, overlap in ways that is not necessarily 
in the it's worth questioning whether it's in the public health best interest because there are financial interests at stake. There are just there are bureaucratic interests at stake, and it's not it's not wrong to probe those. And and people right. have questions that should be answered. I mean, and look, you know, if my grandmother were to catch COVID and she is, of course, uh, you know, double or triple vaccinated, I would probably say, hey, go get some Paxlovid. I mean, go get what you can to try to survive this thing if you're 90 something years old, you know, 70, 65, anything, right? If you're in a high risk category, then I say, uh, you know, I'm with you, Robbie, try everything. Yeah. You have the right to try. Absolutely. You shouldn't be a, a sitting duck for a bad COVID outcome. I, I did this say that when my, when my grandparents who are vaccinated got it, um, I, I, they got COVID and I, I was talking to my mom on the phone and I'm like, are they going to give them? And I, I couldn't remember what it was at the time or it was, it was what, yeah. is, what is it called? Are they going to give them that thing? And uh, they actually, the doctor said it, it, it was mild enough that it was, they, they didn't, the, the disease was mild enough in their case, they didn't recommend it. So they didn't get it and they were fine. But although that's kind of, although with Paxlovid, you're supposed to take it really early before. That, right, the that's what I thought. Severe. So I was confused, but I, they had, they had mild cases and recovered just fine. So. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, and the other thing with Paxlovid also, when we looked at the other drugs that were demonized by the media uh, and by social media, you know, like ivermectin or uh, like fluvoxamine, and these are drugs that you are supposed to take really early on. And they were, so they were willing to do that for the clinical trials, for the limited clim clinical trial for drugs like Paxlovid or, or Molnupiravir, but unwilling to do the same sort of tests yeah. on these other drugs that are generics that are out there, like the FDA now just swatting down fluvoxamine saying, no, we're not gonna, you know, oh, we just, we don't think that that's a, a, an effective treatment because we don't have enough data on it. You know, well, where's the data on this other stuff? But they're still putting it out there. You know, we know we know the data now for, with these new variants that are coming out, um, even with the vaccines that they're waning drastically in efficacy because of these new variants that are coming out. Lots of people are recatching COVID. Or and even they're saying within a couple months time with these new variants, if they're if they're moving fast enough. Um, and yet, you know, there, where's the robust discussion on this? Why are we not? You know, why are companies still mandating this for people and especially children? They're talking about lowering the efficacy barometer for children when it comes to the vaccine for preschoolers, because parents are so desperate to get their young five under five year olds vaccinated that the FDA has announced that they're going to lower the efficacy level that they re that they require in order to get one out to kids faster. How is this not becoming more of a discussion for people is, you know, that's. When, when you say efficacy, Kim, do you mean it's a f efficacy in preventing transmission or it's efficacy in making the effects of COVID less severe when you get it? I think both. I think that they're talking about actually low. I, well, actually, I, I would think that it's only on severe disease because that's the only thing that the FDA has actually been looking at. They haven't been, none of these vaccines have been um, approved for stopping the spread. That was never actually right. in, the, in the documents. So for efficacy, as far as reducing severe illness, the thing is, is that young children in order to, very, 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 very few of them have severe illness. So because of it, they, the sample size has to be enormous in order to get so, you know, you basically have to just start rolling it out on a real world basis in order to figure out, is this saving anybody's life when it comes to preschoolers? Because they just aren't getting sick. They're at extremely low risk category. So they're now lowering the efficacy. And maybe I'll do a big rate. Maybe I'll do a radar on this specifically later on this week on why they just what their reasoning is for lowering the efficacy for kids, why they're doing it and, you know, what the latest is on that. Because I know a lot of parents are wondering 
what's happening for the, with the vaccine for my under fibers. I have friends that have still not left their homes. They're very, very lightly leaving their homes because they have one child that is under the age of five and they're still freaked out of their minds. You know, they're worried that their kid's gonna catch COVID and die. There are parents that feel this way, even though the data shows that it's very, very low risk for kids. I think they're actually at higher risk of dying in a car accident than of COVID, of having a severe COVID outcome. But nonetheless, it's very scary for people. I understand that. So, you know, maybe I'll talk more about that later this week, about the lowering of the bar. But I know that they're lowering it to below 50 percent. Well, thank you, Kim. We will have more rising right after this. President Biden is set to visit Buffalo, New York, following the deadly mass shooting at Topps Friendly Market. The trip comes three days after a white gunman opened fire in the predominantly black neighborhood and community store. Peyton Gendron, the 18-year-old alleged suspect, told authorities he was targeting the black community following his arrest. Now, after the shooting, a document allegedly tied to the gunman emerged online. The so-called manifesto includes racist, anti-immigrant views and cites the Great Replacement Theory. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland said the Justice Department is investigating the attack as a, quote, hate crime and an act of racially motivated violent extremism. Which it seems pretty clear that it is. Um, I, I've been somewhat critical of hate crime designations a little bit in the past, I, I think. And I think the way that they're tallied uh, is somewhat if you look at it so it, it reporting hate crimes to the fbi is a voluntary thing police departments are not obligated to do it but over the years more and more uh, local municipalities do send hate crime data so it can actually look like hate crimes are getting worse year over year only solely because of changes in the reporting and who's doing reporting um, but anyway that's neither here nor there this should clearly be investigated as you know as a as a hate crime, I suppose. Yeah. Although it's, I mean, it's murder regardless. So I don't, it should not, you know, he should get whatever the, you know, maximum penalty for murder or if there are mitigating factors, whatever. But it, you know, his, the, 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 the animating sort of motivate political ideology mm -hmm. is we can discuss it and we can talk about how to discourage it, but it, it, it's well, yeah, murder isn't is it, murder. Isn't it the idea of, regardless of whether you think there should be kind of a hate crime legislation that ups the sentencing or anything like that for, uh, the, you know, depending on what motivated the crime, you know, the same with that there is legislation that makes your penalty higher if you murder a police officer or a judge or things like that. Regardless of whether or not you think that that kind of victim-specific um, change should be in effect, to understand and prevent any kind of crime, it seems to, clear to me that you should understand you should investigate the motivations of it. If we're talking about kind of the prevalence of violence against women, we should talk about why it is that people are vulnerable in specific situations. If we want to talk about the high prevalence of, you know, partner violence among police officers, we should talk about what cultural factors exist in those kinds of communities that are resulting in that outcome. And I think that we don't do a very good job as a country, uh, particularly in certain I would say conservative media spheres are talking about the very existence of racism. The word white supremacy is kind of persona non grata in these spaces. There's a lot of people questioning whether the thing even exists. And I think that that is troubling if you want to be able to predict um, these kinds of incidents and cut them off at the past, not to mention the rise in you know, anti-Asian violence that we've seen over the past year. How can you start to address that if there's absolutely no interrogation of what the cause and effect here may be? Well, I think it's really clear that the cause is amped up rhetoric, right? So anytime you amp up rhetoric against a group and you say this group is bad, 
because of XYZ reason, you're going to eventually get a madman who's just a crazy person. I mean, look, this person, uh, yes, do I think that he had some sort of, you know, I read his, I read his so-called manifesto, whatever you want to call it. It was just like a, uh, it didn't make any sense. It was a 180 pages of nonsense, quite frankly. Uh, and, you know, of course you could like parse through all that and say, wow, well, this person believed this thing or this person believed that thing. It was really clear that this person was insane. So you've got an insane person who then is latched on to some sort of ideology and they're now, but a year prior to that, it was, he was going to go shoot up his school. It had nothing to do with race. It was something else because he's crazy. He's a madman. So I think that you can also do the same sort of thing with like hate crimes against Asian Americans where we're seeing people walking around and punching grandmas in the face. Well, this person is obviously a crazy person and then they're taking ramped up rhetoric and they're running with it, but they're fundamentally insane. And I know people want to, what I'm seeing a lot of right now is people saying, well, no, we shouldn't just call these people crazy. We need to call it what it is. And this is white supremacy. No, this person was crazy who happened to latch on to a radical ideology that it didn't make, the, the radical ideology didn't make him crazy. He's clearly crazy before he latched on to this radical ideology. And I think you could do the same sort of thing with any sort of radical hatred towards a group. One thing that we're seeing also ramped up rhetoric against right-wing America, right? So there's a lot of talk against conservatives calling everybody on the right uh, Nazis. Well, that is also hate speech. So when we see something happen, when we see a hate crime against conservatives, are we gonna call that rhetoric out as well and say, well, you know, when you're telling people, when you're telling your audience that everybody on that, that watches Tucker Carlson is essentially a right-wing Nazi and that Nazis are dangerous and Nazis should be stopped, and then somebody actually does it, you know, are we gonna are we gonna also ascribe blame where that belongs as well to like well, Kim, CNN? If, I if there are people who are saying that everyone who goes on Tucker Carlson are Nazis and subsequently a Nazi uh, someone kills uh, ten of those people as a consequence of that kind of rhetoric, I think that there should be a conversation about whether blame lay, lies there. But I do think it feels a little untoward in the context of all of these people being hunted down and targeted because explicitly they're black Americans with a gun that says, here's your reparations. And that we want to willing to take even a moment to have a conversation about the specific ideology that motivated this outcome. Because what we aren't seeing, we're all, what we aren't seeing is people who are ideologically motivated to have mass killings of white people on the basis of their being white. And thank God that we're not seeing that yet. We are seeing when we're talking about Nazis, a conversation that some folks on the left and on the right are trying to have about whether or not our military aid is going to fund Nazis overseas. And I do think that you're right that there is a certain degree of heightened um, rhetoric that is uh, overcharging conservatives with what they can appropriately be pegged with. And I've talked about this on my show recently, that part of the lack of credibility that liberals have in having these conversations is that some of the language has been poorly uh, targeted to what is actually being said, and they basically tried to peg conservatives like Tucker Carlson with more than they can prove. But there's also plenty that can be proven there in terms of how much he has emphasized the replacement theory, which definitely was a motivator in this case. And even if this act of violence would have happened somewhere eventually because this person is crazy, I think it is pretty meaningful to the people who were killed because they were black that ultimately it was their blackness that got them murdered and um, the people who were not killed injured. Well, we do have, um, Robert, did you want to jump in there? Are we going to move on to 
I was gonna. Well, I was gonna go off on a tangent. So I don't. I, did you guys see that? Uh, I, I mean, I think this is worth discussing. I saw the Associated Press uh, tweet that we should not, and we all have done it today. Uh, they said, "Do not call it a manifesto. You're supposed to call it a racist diatribe," uh, which yeah. I found very because manifesto I don't think has a positive connotation. Uh, you, right, have you ever you say you should read some so and so's manifesto? That's not a, a glorifying or complimentary thing to say, but this was a claim from the Associated Press mm-hmm. that it's like glamorizing him to describe it as a manifesto. But I thought was very weird and totally wrong. And like another example of, I, I, I don't know, trying to change language to show more sensitivity when the language we have is perfectly adequate. You guys didn't see that? I, it, they tweeted it yesterday. It was very odd. I didn't see it, but I actually agree not to use the word. I mean, even though I've been using the word manifesto, not to use the word manifesto, but not for those same reasons. I would say don't use the word manifesto because manifesto implies that there was some real serious political ideology driving mm-hmm. this madman. But this person was clearly crazy. And when you read that document, it didn't make any sense. It was all over the place. It contradicted itself uh, over and over. It was written in question answer form. It was very bizarre. So it wasn't really a manifesto like this guy is rallying up the troops, even though in his deranged mind he thought he was. But it, it wasn't really what I would I would say is like a document that now is expressing a political ideology that is growing in any sort of momentum. I just don't think this is growing in any momentum. I do. And I understand your your point, Brianna, that maybe great replacement theory is being talked about more and more by both the left and the right. Many people on the left said, yeah, that's right. Uh, but I also don't, I, I don't think it's really necessary. I mean, I don't know. This is kind of a strange place to be in when people are talking about it like it's a theory. I thought it was actually a pretty known fact that, that certain, that white people are not actually breeding at a rate that would allow white people to remain dominant on the planet for, I mean, it, it, but that's, so I, I thought that this was like a scientific fact well, that the part of the yeah, the part the of the color it, of the globe is changing. Yes, that's absolutely true. That white people will constitute a smaller proportion of people in America, given birth rates and immigration in the but world. What, in the world, sure. I but think. what right? The yeah. theory, the great replacement theory, specifically says, and that is deliberate on the part of Jewish overlords oh, in I order see. to weaken uh, in right. an American context, in order to harm. Uh, uh, Repu- Republican Party values, the, the European culture, um, capitalism, uh, etc., yeah. which are Got religion, it. Christianity, all of those things. I was saying in an earlier segment, a lot of. I mean, certainly that doesn't add up because it's not part of a right. Jewish cabal doing it. Right. Also, a lot of the uh, immigrants coming to America, you know, immigrants do not have a unanimity of views on these subjects. There are even even if you're if you're operating from the standpoint of one must preserve you know, white conservative values or something. Well, there's a, there's a lot of white people in America who are like arch liberal progressive and there are a lot of immigrants coming in who are more religious and not on board with that kind of stuff. So I think that even if you were trying to make the best case for the theory and like lose the conspiratorial stuff, I don't think it's, I don't think it even. Yeah. When you say the worst thing that happened to the country was an immigration act that changed the demographic not the political, but the demographic valence of the country in the 1960s. And when you're talking about uh, the value of legacy Americans and trying to keep their numbers up when the country was founded with a 20% black population and that's kind of, and they're kind of absent from the discourse, it kind of gives the way, game away about whether or not you're actually con- concerned about uh, cultural shifts 
or whether you're concerned about racial shifts, even though I think people are doing a pretty good job of not having an explicitly uh, racialized rhetoric on TV, at least. Yeah. Well, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre was asked by Fox News' Peter Ducey why Biden didn't visit Waukesha, Wisconsin, after the fatal attack by a driver who ran through a Christmas parade. Let's watch that. And then just one on the trip tomorrow. How come the president is visiting Buffalo after a senseless tragedy there, but he couldn't visit Waukesha after six were killed and 61 injured in an attack on a Christmas parade there? I mean, he's visited many communities. Buffalo, he was, we, you know, he was, he's able to go tomorrow to Buffalo uh, uh, before the trip. That is something that was important for him to do. But he has visited many, uh, many other communities. This is not, Buffalo is not the first community, sadly, that he has to go up to uh, because of a violent attack. So, you know, that's not that's not the first one. So he's been to many others. I, well, I mean, I guess, right, the technical answer is there was something else on the schedule, probably, which maybe is not satisfying to people. I didn't, yeah, you weren't going to get an interesting yeah. response there no matter what. I do think that, look, this particular kind of question, it's so difficult to figure out whether or not there was actually some kind of preference being demonstrated because the schedules are, I, I remember, you know, Bernie Sanders getting in trouble for these kinds of things all the time, and it was always just a scheduling issue. <laughs> and I know it's really unsatisfactory for the public and obviously schedules get changed when there is something that's a significantly high priority or you're gonna take a significantly big political hit. So that does play a role. But you know, I have no interest here in covering for uh, Biden in any circumstances, but it's just so difficult to know here that it's not just what happens to work out that I have a hard time getting frustrated by it. Yeah. Similarly, me as well. Uh, so we also have some updates on the shooting, the church shooting in California that we wanted to get to. Authorities have confirmed the attack was motivated by political hatred against Taiwan. Mostly Taiwanese parishioners attended the church. The alleged gunman's hatred toward Taiwan was documented in handwritten notes that the authorities found. So a hate crime investigation ongoing there as well. This was an older man who thought uh, Taiwan should remain part of China uh, from the reporting I looked at in the LA Times, which uh, is interesting. <laughs> what, do you, yeah. what do you think, Kim? Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounds like the motivation was, is that um, this is, uh, for whatever reason, and again, in his deranged mind, believed that, so he's from mainland China, uh, I, I am assuming, Right. And these parishioners were from Taiwan, and he was taking out his political angst about the about uh, Taiwan and China relations on these parishioners. Although I, I guess it could be that he was also Taiwanese. I guess that's a that's a possibility. I'm not 100% certain. But doesn't it? I know he and, was, you know, here's and here's where it starts to break down, right? In in terms of what the media narrative is about the rise of like hate and right wing hate. Like there was all this reporting previously on how or claims actually some of the reporting did not bear it out that right hate is rising, right wing extremism rising. Trump's rhetoric has emboldened it. And after the uh, after the 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 um, the was a massage parlor uh, killing last yeah, uh, last yeah. year that was, you know, described as anti-Asian violence because all the victims, uh, most of the victims were Asian. But of course, but if you, and if you, you know, again, try to understand that crazy person's motivation, it seemed actually more targeted at sex workers. They just right. happened to be Asian. But so in right. this case, right, here's some, here's anti-Asian violence. And if, right, if you just, if you had just told someone, 
you know, in the wake of that attack a year ago, you say, oh, there was a shooting at a, and, and Asian, Asian people were, were, were killed or shot at. But they, they would say, oh, well, look, look at what, you know, anti-Asian, uh, you know, Trump, the Kung flu kind of rhetoric has unleashed. Well, actually, it was it was a pro-Chinese nationalism kind of person doing right. it, which is like the opposite of that. So the, the reality, sometimes, you know, the reality does fit what like the narratives are not always wrong there there you can you can draw i think in the buffalo shooting a much clearer uh clearer line between uh there's some really awful language about immigrants and non-white people and this kind of thing but that it, there's so much violence in this country it's terrible and it, is, it just does not all fit with what you would expect or what is being talked about by the media some of it is just totally non-political a lot of it most of it vast majority right. totally non-political and i think it's important to always keep that in mind Absolutely. Yeah. Well, tomorrow on Rising, Hill reporter Julia Manchester will be here to break down the results so far from Tuesday's primary contest. And we'll be talking about President Biden's decision to approve a plan to redeploy troops to Somalia. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you tomorrow. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.